Viral infections continue to emerge and represent a serious threat to global public health. From severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, in 2002, and the H1N1 influenza outbreak in 2009, to Middle East respiratory syndrome, or MERS, in 2012. Yet, none has caused the level of global devastation levied by the coronavirus. With COVID vaccines and treatment for acute symptoms on the horizon, the long-term challenges of COVID-19 on our healthcare system are just beginning to come into focus. Recent studies have shown that patients recovering from COVID-19 could experience long-term complications that could last far beyond the infection's acute phase. Managing these complications will increase the demand for healthcare resources in the years to come and elevate the need for novel therapies to manage these complications. This podcast will discuss the opportunity presented to biopharma companies to prepare for COVID-19-related complications, to develop novel treatments to manage these complications, and to invest in the development of vaccines and treatments for infectious diseases in general, so that we are better prepared for future pandemic. My name is Cy Pretorius. I'm the President of Clinical Development and Chief Medical Officer at Parkcell, and I am delighted to be moderating this podcast. Thank you for listening. I am joined today by my co-hosts, Paul Bridges, Head of Parkcell's Regulatory and Access Group. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Cy. And also Ruggiero Rossi, Vice President of Health Advances. Welcome, Ruggiero. Hi, Cy. As shared during the introduction, this episode will focus on three areas future growth in infectious diseases in general, the long-term complications of COVID-19, and the need to develop treatments for these complications. Let's dive right in. Gentlemen, first question to both of you. As we look to the future, I think that it is fair to anticipate a growth surge in the infectious disease space. What, in your opinion, are the main opportunities that you see and anticipate? Ruggiero, let's start with you. Yes, we, we, we definitely expect uh, growth in, in the infectious disease space. Uh, and mostly we, we have to uh, keep in mind that the pandemic has really generated an unprecedented level of public awareness of infectious diseases. And this will have a lasting impact on the way governments, healthcare systems, and patients will really approach infectious diseases in the future. Uh, as, as we start with COVID, uh, COVID is far from being under control. Uh, but despite that, the world response to the pandemic has really been exceptional. Um, just starting with the incredible feat of developing highly effective COVID vaccines in really less than a year um, to really the effort of establishing facilities like COVAX to really ensure that the distribution of the vaccine globally is equitable. So these are all great things that are happening despite the great emergency that COVID has generated. Uh, now, as we look into the future, um, the governments that, are not, that have experienced the great cost, human and economic, of COVID, we really place more emphasis on pandemic preparedness. Um, and that we mean including the increased level of funding for R&D uh, for the development of novel vaccines. Um, and at the level of the public opinion, COVID has really made people much more aware of the risk of infectious diseases. Um, it's quite incredible that even at the level of the public opinion, um, terms like uh, herd immunity that were usually relegated to the experts are now commonplace as understood. So even at the level of public opinion, we really expect that people are going to be 
more and more attuned with the need for vaccination and the need for being prepared uh, for the future pandemic. So we really expect infectious disease therapeutics to uh, to grow, um, and there's going to be a recognition of the increased burden of infectious diseases, uh, particularly in the, in, uh, in the field of respiratory illnesses. So we'll con- continue to research on COVID, influenza, RSV, uh, and many others. Ruggiero, thank you very much. Paul, would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, there's some great points made by Ruggiero there, and, and I, I agree. Um, the public has definitely um, woken up to um, the devastating impact of the pandemic and woken up to the threat more generally posed by untreated infectious disease. Um, in fact, governments themselves have long been concerned about the lack of innovation in this area, um, long been concerned about the emergence, for example, of anti-infective re- resistance. Um, and this concern has in fact led to a number of initiatives for developers in this space. And I believe that we will now see significant uptake by companies developing infectious disease products of these incentives. For example, um, in, in, in my regulatory space, I can look to the FDA's GAIN initiative generating antibiotic in the, in incentives now, which was in fact launched back in 2012 and, and actually has had only moderate success in driving innovation since that time. It was designed to encourage development of an, um, antibacterial and antifungal drugs for the treatment of serious or life in, in, uh, life-threatening infections. Um, but in fact, there was very little uptake. I think that the society awareness, the government awareness of the impact of infectious disease now that has been woken, um, we'll see this change. I think uh, we now we'll see greater um, embracing of these incentives. Um, programs that have already been established and are aware uh, were available to um, developers. In fact, I predict that these incentives may be looked at again to encourage their further further use. Um, of course, we also have um, FDA's breakthrough therapy designations for emerging therapies to treat COVID complications, and, and, and many sponsors are now u- utilizing those breakthrough therapy designations to accelerate their development and approval of these uh, uh, products to treat um, COVID. And we will see continued use of breakthrough therapies going forwards. Um, similar schemes, I've focused my response on the the U.S. situation. Similar schemes also exist in Europe. For example, um, EMA similarly back in 2016 launched their own prime scheme for priority medicines. Um, one eye on Brexit, MHRA themselves have um, launched a promising innovation medicine scheme. Um, and overall, with the impact of infectious disease becoming so much more important, as Roger and I have reflected upon, these schemes will, I think, and I predict, will help continue to bring new therapies to market. Paul, thank you very much. Some interesting and valid points in there. Ruggiero, anything to add? Yes, I also want to reflect on the commercial opportunity, and that's a lot of the work that we do at Health Advances. And we've done work in the past few months, really, around covid and to really understand the impact on COVID for for other infectious diseases. And uh, one thing to notice is there will be continued development for COVID. While the first vaccines have generated data that is absolutely incredible, there are still many opportunities for improvement from going to kind of one dose to increase and and have better temperature stability and and to really have uh, potentially even higher efficacy 
um, with other other vaccines is something that's going to continue to um, to be developed by uh, companies and and, and um, regulators alike. Now, there will also be opportunities for other infectious diseases. Uh, number one, because there's now an increased appetite for mitigating any future risk from a virus outbreak. Um, and also because uh, our, our research has shown that many development programs for non-COVID vaccines have been put on hold this year, uh, just because so much of a priority was, was COVID that they couldn't be um, really developed in the clinic. So we also expect a resurgence of clinical trials for non-COVID um, vaccines uh, during the course of 2021. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Gentlemen, sort of staying with the, the theme, this theme of growth in infectious diseases in general, I'm interested, you know, to both of you, where do you think this growth in the infectious diseases space uh, in development in this space, where do you think it'll incubate? Ruggiero, any thoughts on your end? Yes, I, I think that the incubation will come from several places. Um, companies that have platforms that can readily be customized, and mRNA really comes to mind as a great example, um, we, we will kind of have um, funding and really focus on a develop, a fa faster development of, of vaccines and, and therapeutics. Uh, and there are emerging leaders in the field. Clearly, Modern and BioNTech in mRNA um, have, have really led the way in terms of this novel technology. Uh, but we also expect uh, smaller biotech startups um, to really follow with similar technologies. Um, and given the kind of what COVID has demonstrated being a great area for investment, we really expect these companies to be able to attract um, significant private funding. At the same time, we also have to recognize that a number of these diseases uh, may not have a great market to begin with. So we also expect public funding to really um, support some of the development, uh, particularly into areas where um, governments really want to make sure to be prepared for a future outbreak. Mm -hmm. Paul, anything to add? Yeah, um, um, great points, Ruggiero. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think society waking up to the impact of infectious disease is driving um, greater investment in biotech and pharma. We only need to look at the stock markets to recognize that that is a re reality right now. Um, that investment will clearly be um very much focused in the areas that we're discussing today. So post-COVID, I think we're going to see greater investment in, in infectious disease. Um, if I look back on my own career, I, I actually started at Paroxel as a project lead working on an anti-infectious um, disease uh, treatment um, NDA that directed at the US market. It was just post-9-11, uh, and there was a spike in interest in um, development of uh, anti-infectives driven by the bioterrorism threat. Now, it was somewhat short lived, but we did see a, a spike in activity in that space. Um, I think with the global impact of, of what we're seeing with COVID-19, we're going to see that um, play out again here. Um, but very much biotech are running with that um, right now. We're seeing a lot of investment in that space. Ruggiero reflected on the um, innovative mRNA platform for the COVID vaccines that are starting to roll out now. And there's a lot of excitement about how they can be tweaked and adapted for other, um, for other infectious 
infectious diseases uh, to provide that um, vaccine treatment um, on a pl- platform basis. And so I think um, with many of the challenges of their development being overcome with the launch of COVID-19, we're going to see a lot more um, vaccines utilizing that um, uh, platform now that the proof of concept has been made. So I, I, we're entering definitely an exciting period um, in this space. Yeah, no, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Gentlemen, let's talk a little bit about innovation, something that is very dear to uh, all of us. In the infectious disease development space, what types of innovation have you or are you seeing? Ruggiero, maybe we start with you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to pick up on, on a point that Paul just made. Um, as far as platform technologies, this has been a time of kind of great innovation, um, mRNA for one, DNA, uh, many other technologies that weren't available before uh, for, for vaccines are now available and have demonstrated to be successful. And, and just to kind of use mRNA as an example, um, mRNA really allowed for a much, much faster development timeline relative to traditional vaccine technologies. And this will really make for an incredible tool to address viruses that are novel, viruses that are mutating over time and really potentially go back to the drawing board for some viruses that are really hard to uh, vaccinate against and really try new technologies um, to, to, to really try to address them. Now, if we stay on, on mRNA as an example, these new technologies start with some limitations. Um, and mRNA, for example, has quite strict cold chain requirements. They're still very complex to manufacture and expensive to manufacture. Um, but at the same time, there's already some improvement that are being studied. Um, and just a couple of examples uh, that there are companies that are investing into self-amplifying mRNA. And this is a technology that could really enable a more potent immune response with a much lower dose. So this is a very exciting um, development that could really make um, small batch production of, of mRNA vaccines a reality. Uh, and the other one is different nanoparticle formulations that can really increase the temperature tolerance. So if we could have mRNA vaccines that can be um, stored at refrigerated or room temperature, again, it will really change the game um, in, in terms of really making these products available globally. Ruggiero, thank you. you. You make some interesting points. It's worth noting that these newer approaches, these mRNA approaches, basically introduce the genetic recipe for the virus antigen into the body, either directly or by using another virus. And this allows, in essence, the cellular machinery to manufacture this viral antigen and to display it on the cell surface, thereby enabling the immune system to recognize and fight the virus. And to your point, Ruggiero, by their nature, these approaches offer the advantage of increased development speed. But as you said, they are still relatively unproven. Uh, If I recall correctly, of the 34 COVID-19 vaccines currently being evaluated in clinical trials, 17 are of this type, this mRNA approach. We also expect to see continued high demand for healthcare resources to address the unmet need for ongoing COVID-19 related complications and expected disease burden, including complications such as lung injury, cardiovascular disease, neurocognitive and mental health impact. Ruggiero, any thoughts in this regard? Yeah, so you, you, you make a great point and, and, and the scale of the pandemic really suggests that 
the level of alpha met need will be will be very significant um, post COVID in terms of uh, long term complications in the year to come, and, and and I think it's not just about the severity of the complication, but the potential number of people that might be affected by those complications. And and just as as a reference, you you mentioned this number um, early in the podcast. We have 64 million cases of COVID uh, to date. And when you compare this to 8,000 cases for SARS or 2,000 for MERS, you really get a sense for the scale um, of, of the potential kind of number of people that could be affected by these complications. Yeah, th- th- those are some uh, uh, scary numbers you're quoting, Ruggiero. But I think what's encouraging to me is the um, is the response of the government and and the government regulators, the government agencies to the scale of the threat of the pandemic that, you, that you've just re- referenced. Now, as an ex-regulator myself, I do do confess some bias here, but I think the response of the governments and the government regulators to the pandemic bodes very well for ongoing cooperation between industry and regulators going forward beyond COVID. Um, I've mentioned the incentives um, for infectious disease development that already exist and are being leveraged right now and and greater awareness of those incentives, I I think, will drive um, greater cooperation. But it's also the high level of engagement, just the sheer engagement with companies that we've seen from agencies that has made a difference with COVID. And I expect that engagement will become a norm and and will will be here to stay. Uh, One example is the apparent rolling review of the vaccine submission by the UK competent authority, the MHRA, which seems to have facilitated the United Kingdom being the very first um, country to approve and indeed administer the vaccine. This is a clear success for regulatory and industry collaboration, quite frankly, driving societal benefit. And I think we're going to see that emerging as the norm now that public can see the importance of cooperation in these areas. And, And I'm excited by that. Um, looking beyond COVID again, um, we've also seen the quick I- issuance of new guidelines during the COVID pandemic. And, and beyond COVID, I think it's encouraging that we've seen that pace of change and the pace of um, information being sent out to sponsors and to companies um, triggered by COVID. And I think that that pace will become, again, the, the, the new norm. And I'm optimistic that the accelerated pace of engagement will become um, the new norm and be well Welcomed by all stakeholders. Um, I'm, I'm also minded to reflect, we, we've spoken a lot about COVID-19, but the impact of infectious disease oftentimes manifests way beyond the initial infection, as we've seen with COVID, with so-called long COVID. And here again, I take encouragement from agency support for the development of novel treatments for the complications of infections. And there's certainly greater awareness of the need for robust emergency access schemes for um, therapies for complications, and indeed support for repurposing of existing drugs. And we've seen that in with COVID, certainly, and fast fast tracking of, of, of new treatments. So I, I'm very optimistic that the changes we've seen in the pace of development and regulation driven by COVID, uh, the, the pace of changes is, is, is a reality and it's here to stay. We've got a newfound awareness that we can approve new 
therapies, important new therapies more quickly than we have done in the past. And in so doing, um, potentially manage the societal impact of these infections and their complications. So I- I- exciting times of change, uh, I-, I think. Paul, sort of uh, picking up on the regulatory perspective that you shared, I, I think also from a clinical perspective, the industry is well positioned to rapidly advance research in, in long COVID and in COVID-specific complications with the acceleration of approaches such as decentralized clinical trials, integration of real-world evidence, uh, use of decentralized and direct-to-patient type approaches, and of course, leveraging technology, which has become sort of commonplace in, in providing general health care uh, at present. I'd like to switch over. We've spoken a lot about some of the positive things, but what are some of the challenges that may impact the growth of infectious diseases? And this time around, Paul, why don't we start with you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Sai, we have to acknowledge the, 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 the scale of the challenge that we face. A lot of the excitement that I've shared uh, during the course of this podcast um, is, of course, it has to be funded. And um the increased pace of R&D and approvals takes cash without doubt. And here we have to acknowledge the economic headwinds that clearly are now only just emerging post-pandemic. And whilst economies worldwide are are getting back on their feet and and, and in some regions of the world are mostly back up and running post-lockdown, many countries are still managing the resurgence of cases and and the economic downturn will affect top-line revenue, will affect government finances and access to capital. Um, And that will impact um, our ability to move nimbly and and, and fast in the areas of anti-infective development and and, uh, treatments. So we have to acknowledge that. Um, Also, our supply chains are coming under scrutiny as governments seek to ensure reliable access to treatments. So um, supply chain continuity is going to be an important uh, point of scrutiny going forwards without doubt. So a lot of optimism, but um, clearly some headwinds emerging. Yeah, uh, Paul, these are definitely uh, great points and a lot of things that companies will need to keep in mind as they think about uh, next steps. Uh, The good news is that um, and this is suggested by research that we have done at Health Advances, the pharma industry in particular is a bit more resilient to recession than um, the overall healthcare sector. Um, and, and mostly because, in my view, because um, a lot of the private equity um, funds available uh, are going to be directed toward uh, areas of growth. And, and, and clearly, uh, the reason why we're in this recession is because of COVID. So a lot of the work that kind of the industry is going to do to provide solutions for COVID uh, are also going to be seen as a way to get out of the recession we're in uh, and, and go back to growth. Yeah, undoubtedly, Ruggiero, and, and um, we, we should all, as, as active players in this sector, be encouraged by that. But you know, undoubtedly, the biopharma sales will face pressures from the recession's economic fallout. Uh, for example, as uninsured and Medicaid populations in the U- United States rise and payers more aggressively manage drug spending, we're going to see headwinds for companies and, and, and clearly sales pressures emerge. Uh, commercial payers uh, come under substantial stress during recessions. We know that from uh, past uh, recessions. During the last economic downturn, for example, um, operating margins for major U.S commercial payers declined from a high of around 9% in 2007 to a low of 6% in 2009. 
as a result, it stands to reason that similar adjustments um, in the forthcoming years will uh, see payers seek to tighten their access, the access to drugs to, to manage these impacts. So um, a complex picture will undoubtedly emerge. This is this is actually a very important point to to, to mention, Paul, uh, because market access is is definitely one of the key uh, potential issues for for the future of, of the industry. Um, clearly, these these pressures will be different by uh, therapeutic area and by indication, where indications that are more severe that are acute. Um, we potentially have a fewer restrictions, but at the level of overall budgets, I, I completely agree with you, Paul, that there will certainly be pressure to um, really only approve drugs that are transformational and that provide, um, in, in some cases, cost benefits. Um, and I think that one thing to mention here is that um, vaccines are, are generally very cost effective, um, particularly if they are not too expensive, they tend to provide a lot of benefit for, for governments and for countries. And, and even managing some of these long-term consequences of COVID um, will potentially have the benefit of being cost effective um, because of all the things that these treatments could do in terms of getting people back to work, um, avoiding hospitalizations, avoid um, physician visits. Um, so there's definitely things to keep in mind. Um, but for me, the, the takeaway is that there's going to be a continued premium of innovation. Innovative drugs that can deliver results uh, will probably have access, uh, but many others will, will face challenges. Uh, Ruggiero, a great point. Um, selfishly, I want us to, I want to pivot the conversation. I know we're, we're, we're running out of time now. Um, I, I touched upon supply chain as an issue and, and, and selfishly, I just want to re-highlight that. Um, a, a key part of my own business here at Paracel is helping companies to manage, um, compliance issues, manufacturing compliance and, and compliance remediation with agencies around the world and, and supply chain, therefore, is an area of focus. Focus for my team, and 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 we're seeing is a critical area in this space, and and COVID is 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 shining a light on that. Um, over the last couple of decades, we've seen the emergence of just-in-time supply and and very lean supply chains, global supply chains, and and COVID is 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 really challenging that approach. Um, I, I make reference to this because we're reading in the press today about uh, revisions downward of the vaccine manufacturing potentially um, that was forecast by some of the major vaccine manufacturers because of concern about supplies of raw materials. Um, they over forecast the availability of raw material supplies. We're reading perhaps that some of the raw materials that were coming into the supply chain weren't of the quality that they had expected. And they're now having to revise down some of their manufacturing forecasts with huge implications for the vaccine program. So one of the final things I wanted to high, highlight is that we really are reviewing and reassessing um, our approach to supply chain. We're recommending that our firms go back and qualify their raw, raw materials suppliers, put in greater mitigations in the event of supply chain disruptions. And, and you know, quite frankly, qualification of multiple suppliers um, can ensure that raw materials 
are supplied and are available in the quantities that need and can ensure that vaccine programs um, stay on track and, and look at the societal impact of being able to achieve that and the societal impact of not achieving that. So I, I would like to flag that supply chain is a key issue. Again, an issue because you know, politically, um, manufacturing supply has become some, such an important topic. We saw offshoring, of course, you know, a couple of decades ago, becoming a hot trend. And, and more recently, uh, repatriation of supply uh, was a political um, imperative. Um, and I think this trend will survive changes in the current political landscape that we're seeing um, occurring right now, certainly in the United States. Um, again, driven by a greater acceptance of the impact of disease and some of the supply chain issues that I'm, um, I'm referring to. So we're not able to get into some of that detail, but I think there's a fascinating podcast around supply chain um, um, uh, importance uh, driven by the COVID and, and some significant changes in the way that we approach supply chain going forwards. Paul, thank you very much. Clearly, there are you know a number of challenges. I would say, though, despite these challenges, it's, it's probably fair to say that the pandemic has truly been a catalyst for the adoption of new and innovative approaches in drug development. What typically or previously took months to, ple- to complete got done in weeks during the pandemic and what traditionally took weeks uh, often got done in hours. And, and to me, it is critically important that as an industry, we reflect on how we made this happen and what we did differently. And most importantly, that we do not go back to the way we did things before the pandemic. Uh, in fact, we here at Park Cell have launched a Twitter campaign, hashtag no going back, in an effort to urge our industry colleagues not to fall back to the way in which we previously did drug development. Gentlemen, let's, let's wrap up and pivot to solutions that Park Cell is offering clients. The demand for products and treatments to manage ongoing complications for COVID-19 presents a clear opportunity for the biopharma industry. And to that end, we anticipate a surge in novel therapies to manage these complications more effectively. How are your teams preparing to support our clients in this regard? And Paul, maybe we start with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sai, thanks for asking that question. We're we're excited that that, um, some 18 months ago, we brought together uh, some 2,000 employees within the regulatory real-world evidence and market market access expert teams um, into one business line. So we consolidated uh, regulatory market access and real-world evidence into a single business line to bring them closer together, anticipating the convergence of these disciplines um, the, the the increasing convergence of regulators and payers, for example, we were anticipating that more of those conversations would take place around a single table, and there was a need to bring the, the various stakeholders together so that we could more move more quickly in this space to not only approve drugs more quickly, but to get them reimbursed and to the patient bedside. Of course, uh, COVID has transformed the way that that has been occurring. And um, I'd like to say that that was a smart bet on our side, but actually COVID has has, has shone a light on that and, and demonstrated why it's it's more uh, necessary now than it's, it's ever ever been. And, and, and as a consequence, we've been busier 
than ever helping our customers with COVID-19 product development. I mentioned the supply chain integrity that is now dovetailing into the work of the teams as well. And, and, and really, as I spoke to earlier, the closer engagement with regulators and payers that is proving to be necessary to drive things faster demanded by society and the public in general. Um, of course, this is increasingly being done within a virtual setting, helped by our own digital communication experts. Um, um, an example of, of which is uh, GMP inspections now taking place virtually uh, from desktops, uh, unheard of just a couple of years ago. Um, so a, a, an exciting time of change. I'd like to think our teams are pivoting to that change. And certainly we're seeing the fruits of that change um, in the approvals that we're supporting that are making headlines today. So, so definitely exciting times. Ruggiero, anything to add? Yes, when, when, when it comes to uh, health advances, but really at the core of what we do, uh, we really help our clients devise strategies to successfully bring their innovations to the market. So when, when, when it comes to infectious diseases, we have an infectious disease practice uh, which spans um, biopharma, but also, for example, diagnostics. So we, we really cover all the aspects of um, of an infectious disease um, pandemic, um, in, particularly for COVID. So what, what we're going to continue to do, we're going to continue to follow COVID and, and its evolution in terms of how it's changing the industry, uh, how it's kind of creating a met needs in the market, and, and how different companies are, are responding to, to the pandemic. At the same time, we're going to help companies evaluate the commercial opportunities that, that, that COVID is going to generate directly in terms of additional COVID vaccines that may come to market or, or specific diagnostics that may be used, uh, but also as new um, products for, uh, for example, long COVID or for additional infectious diseases that, that may kind of uh, rise as a priority based, uh, based on COVID um, to really evaluate how to um, bring these, these products to market in terms of what's the best strategy, what could be the reception from the market, um, what could be the market access uh, impediments uh, to really get there. Finally, uh, another thing that we, we think is important, and we discussed this during our podcast, clearly funding for, for these innovations is going to be critical. And um, some of the work we do is really around helping biotech companies in their value creation journey in terms of how to get to value inflection point, how to think about trials so that you can, you can really demonstrate efficacy early on, um, and how to, uh, to get to a point of partnering or M&A um, to really be able to, to run the trials that are necessary to demonstrate uh, the value of a product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think likewise in the in the clinical space, the clinical development space, Parkcell is also working closely with our clients by leveraging innovations such as decentralized clinical trials. Currently, we are running more than 100 of these on behalf of clients, as well as direct to patient shipments. So at present, we are shipping drug supply directly to patients on, on behalf of approximately 600 sites. In addition to that, uh, we are investing significantly in the expanded use of real-world evidence as we believe that this will play an increasingly important role in drug development going forward. Gentlemen, time has literally flown by. I would like to thank both of you, Paul and you, Ruggiero, for joining me today and for sharing your insights. Thank you once more. And until next time, goodbye.